more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. You're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Celine. And I'm Matt Vaughan. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU, and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things we have going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show, our guest is Natalie Van Gelder. Welcome. Natalie is a first-year graduate student in the School of Writing, Literature, and Film, and she is in the Creative Nonfiction program in the MFA program. So welcome to the show, Natalie. We're so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Great. We're so excited to talk to you, especially after our conversation that we had earlier this week. And yeah. We just always love getting writers on the program because we do hear so much from uh, other fields and it's great to have more writers here. So. It's very science heavy, so <laughs> I'm glad to have someone who's not a scientist for once. Although we will <laughs> talk a lot about science. Yeah, and you've got an interest in science. I so. do. I love science. Great. So why don't we start there and maybe you can give us kind of the introduction to what your writing interests are. Yeah, so my creative writing uh, interests work in the spaces of uh, something called the medical humanities. Um, there's a subset of the med medical humanities called narrative medicine, and that's what I'm really interested in. Um, and I've grown a new interest uh, specifically in disability studies as it um, relates to neurodivergency. So also in my writing, I uh, focus a lot on my childhood and the desert where I grew up. Great. And let's talk about that desert just a little bit to begin with. So where are you from? What desert are we talking about? Yeah, so uh, it's part of the Mojave Desert um, in Southern California. Uh, the Antelope Valley mm -hmm. is the um, community that I grew up. So there's, um, it's a accumulation of a few different towns. The one that I'm from is, from, is called Palmdale. Um, and it's a high desert, so it gets very cold in the winter, but very, very hot in the summer. And uh, just, you know, it's a desert, so it's very dry. Mm -hmm. uh, the town that I grew up in um, is a bedroom community north of L.A., so uh, I grew up there in the 80s and 90s. So people who uh, worked in L.A. but couldn't necessarily afford to live in L.A. often lived in the Antelope Valley and then commuted. But it's also a hub for aerospace. Mm -hmm. um, Edwards Air Force Base is fairly close to there, but also um, Northrop, Lockheed, uh, Rockwell, a lot of other ones. So um, a lot of airplanes and UFOs yeah, <laughs> that I yeah. grew up with. So it's, it's a very interesting um, place to grow up. Uh, I didn't realize just how unique it was until I became an adult and started going other places and telling people stories about where I was from and um, got a lot of weird glances. But <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, how natural environments affect child 
development too. Mm-hmm. Um, the places that we um, grow developmentally at a, from a young age, I think, have a really interesting effect on who we become as adults. And so yeah. that works its way into my writing a lot too. And did you find uh, that childhood and your interest in, you know, the desert or the natural surrounding? Is that uh, sort of what led you to get into writing or how, when did you find you were first interested in writing and <laughs> how did it evolve? Yeah, I, I mean, like a lot of writers, my interest in writing started with reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, the house that I grew up in, my dad um, actually built <laughs> and it was in a very uh, rural section of the desert. So we didn't have a lot of neighbors or anything, but we also didn't have um, cable. So it was we read. <laughs> we read books. And just falling into narrative uh, was easy for me and my sisters. Um, my parents also were avid readers. And so I learned early um, in my life that I just am drawn to storytelling. Um, so I started writing from a very young age, too. Um, I kind of knew if I didn't want to be a writer, I, I wanted to do something in the sciences. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, now I kind of do both. <laughs> Yeah, so let's talk more about that. Uh, when we spoke earlier this week, you told us about the medical humanities and narrative medicine. And I wonder if you can tell the listeners a bit about what those fields mean to you and why you're drawn to them. Yeah, uh, I actually started writing and dabbling in them before I even knew that they were fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a couple of professors at um, Cal State Northridge where I studied my um for my MA in creative writing, uh, introduced me to the terminology, but the medical humanities basically is um, an interdisciplinary field of study that was created in reaction to this growing disconnect between uh, medical practitioners and patients. Um, It centers on reincorporating humanity into medicine, instead of seeing patients as, you know, charts and, mm-hmm. and um, graphs and things like that, uh, really remembering that they're humans yeah. um, and creating empathy around that. And that's done in a variety of ways, and narrative medicine is one of them. Uh, these fields have, you know, in theory have been around for a while, but uh, as actual fields of study are, are fairly new, so there's no set um, definitions of what they are. Uh, they're still being worked out, but narrative medicine uh, focuses on storytelling specifically to grow that relationship between uh, practitioners and their patients. And what might that look like in the practitioner-client appointment or interaction? Yeah, so um, I think everyone's probably experienced this uh, um, effect of, of going to see a doctor, and um, you know, when the doctor comes in, they, they ask, you know, uh, what brought you here? What's wrong? And it's a very quick interaction. Uh, there's not a lot of time because there's they're overtaxed to see a lot of patients, and so um, the diagnosis usually comes from uh, looking at specific symptoms. Um, sometimes the the patient doesn't really even understand you know how to um, relay that terminology. They're not you know they're not a doctor, uh, and if there is a family history or any type of um, patient history, that comes at the end or it gets cut off. So with narrative medicine, the storytelling is placed first. Mm-hmm. And um, I, had a, I had a bunch of quotes that I brought, but they're probably going to confuse me if I look them up. <laughs> mm-hmm. But so I'll paraphrase. Uh, but um, there's this idea that if uh, you allow this patient to tell their story, the diagnosis will often come from that. Yeah. Because 
patients know themselves best. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a huge disconnect even when I go to the doctors. Um, you know, I just often feel like I'm getting rushed out the door and they're trying to, you know, have a Band-Aid fix. Mm-hmm. Whereas it sounds like um, if you're giving your own narrative, you know, the doctor's looking at you more as, as a human and what you mentioned uh, more as a patient rather than, I guess, a client, um, you know, just looking to, you know, be fixed or out the door. So, right. yeah, how, how does this go in practice? Um, so the patient writes, but also is there any um, responsibility on the end of the physician? Yeah, so uh, medical humanities um, in general focuses on like three elements. One of them is education and training of medical professionals. Uh, one of them is um, experiences in the arts and humanities um, and using those uh, ex- experiences in practice to uh, create expression and communication of of stories and things like that. So um, the ways that these can play out with narrative medicine are, like we just mentioned, in uh, just in interactions between um, in-person interactions, but also uh, writing is a huge component of it as well. Um, writing for discovery is something that uh, I do personally as writing as a writer, but it's something I encourage um, other people to do as well. Um, your brain creates specific connections uh, when you write that help organize ideas. And so uh, it's also used as therapy. Um, so doctors who practice writing in a creative sense or uh, for catharsis um, tend to have better ways of expressing their emotions, um, which can bleed off in positive ways to patients. Um, and then patients, if they write their stories out before they speak to their doctors, um, can work things out in a therapeutic way, but can also organize their ideas so when they have those stories to share with their doctors, they're more composed. Um, So it just helps organize, uh, increase communication between those through organization and and therapeutic reasons. It sounds like such a powerful tool and one that can definitely be used more. And I know that's an interest of yours too, to teach writing especially to people who may not know how powerful it is. And we'll talk about that a bit later, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you've used writing for discovery and how writing has helped you interact with and make sense of the world. Absolutely. Um, So I had kind of a detour from writing um, that we can talk about later, but uh, I really came back to writing a little bit later in my life Um, and through that MA program that I was talking about, when I started writing stories about myself, um, I segued at some, at one point from writing fiction to writing creative nonfiction, um, in a memoir style. And it was really interesting because the more I wrote about myself, which was new to me, the more questions I had about myself and about my life. Um, and those Questions could only be answered through more writing, which created more questions. So um, that's how I fell into writing for discovery. And my thesis project uh, at CSUN um, became sort of a experiment in narrative medicine, looking at myself as a client, my, mm-hmm. like my own client, um, trying to discover my identity, why I I, my brain works the way it does and how I interact with the world around me. Um, once I realized the power of that, it really made me realize that I wanted to share that with other people. Mm-hmm. 
And I wonder if maybe now's a good time to uh, hear some of your work. So maybe first you can tell us a little bit more about what we're about to hear and the project that you mentioned earlier and how it came about too. Yeah, absolutely. So um, at Cal State Northridge, I took a course with Catherine Hake. Uh, it was on hybrid narrative, and that was a term, also a term I'd never heard before. But um, hybridity is basically it could be interdisciplinary or intergenre, um, but emerging or fusing of of many different uh, styles and concepts and things into one work. So um, I have a past. I have past experience as a technical writer and editor for aerospace. Um, and so that kind of fed into my science, uh, the science elements of my piece. But really, I wanted to focus on um, memoir. And so the piece starts with um, stories from young in my when I was young, uh, around age six, up through about age 24, um, really trying to parse out using memory to parse out uh, why certain things happened to me, um, the way that they did, how I interpreted them and reacted to them um, in order to kind of figure out why I'm different, mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so this excerpt that I'm going to share uh, is very heavily based in the desert where I grew up, um, and it focuses on my interaction with Joshua Trees. One, puncture wounds. As children, my four sisters and I built Joshua tree forts the way other children build houses and oak trees. We scoured the desert for hours, finding near-rotted plywood, two-by-fours, and rusty bent nails that we bent back into shape with hammers we snuck out of our father's garage. More than once, I fell from the branches, often onto a yucca or tumbleweed. Joshua tree needles create puncture wounds that fester for days. The pain is concentrated to a singular area where the needle pierces the skin, but the surrounding muscle tissue aches as if being punched. Wounds like these are not taken as seriously as, say, being thrown from a mountain bike onto gravel, perhaps due to a lack of gore. Puncture wounds cause a different type of pain, however, a bruise so deep you can't see, a bruise that throbs so consistently that you forget it's there until you bang a shoulder or a leg against a door frame as you're running too fast through the house. On such a day, my mom would draw me a baking soda bath, then promise not to climb the trees. Like a good girl, I would promise, and the next day I would be back in them this time searching for more secure footing. As long as I didn't fall, she would never know. Even though I was raised among the trees, they still felt alien to me, and thus as a young child, I felt the urge to study them intimately. Joshua tree fruit form in clusters on the ends of spiny branches or arms. Sometimes when the fruit were ripe enough, I'd kick the base of a tree and one would fall into my tiny chapped hands. Each honeydew-colored fruit is about three to four inches in length and two to three inches in diameter, with four equally delineated sections. When I ran a fingernail down the groove that separated each section, I felt shallow pits, much like a zucchini, and when I sliced them open, I found thousands of flat black seeds that resembled those of a watermelon. As I pulled the seeds out one by one with a pair of my mother's tweezers, my stomach turned and I felt a bit dizzy, but I didn't stop until they were all out, leaving dozens of empty, milk-white cavities, lined up in neat vertical rows. Many fruits also housed maggot-like moth larvae. The worms were a little bigger than a grain of rice. They wriggled and squirmed as I worked my way around them to remove the seeds. Sometimes I accidentally pinched a worm and felt how soft and delicate it was, much too delicate for harsh desert life. And yet it existed and thrived, safely cocooned in its Joshua tree fruit home. 
I knew spring had sprung in the high desert when Joshua trees burst to life with flowers. Cone-shaped clusters of creamy, waxy, trumpet-like petals exploded from the ends of each spiny arm. The accompanying stink of the flowers, mixed with the sweet and acrid scent of creosote and the musk of California poppy, told me that spring had arrived and we'd finally get a break from icy roads and frozen lawns of winter and the windy fire season of late summer and fall. Spring is when the desert's at its most calm and is thus a time to blossom, to grow, to prepare, and to heal. Two, symbiosis. Relationships are essential for any life to flourish. The western Joshua tree, or yucca breviflorea, for example, lives in a symbiotic relationship with yucca moss. The tree's ability to reproduce is contingent on the moss' ability to pollinate them. Joshua trees also live in very specific territories of high desert. In areas that are growing hotter, the trees are getting smaller and slowly dying away. In a cruel twist, the area of the desert that are possibly cool enough to sustain the trees through climate change are too cool for the moths to live. Thus, where the trees don't die from the heat, they cease to reproduce. The fate of an entire species rests on its relationship to another living thing. Desert life's both incredibly resilient and delicate. Harsh environments have a way of toughening those who live in them by providing a reason to form a shell of armor as protection against outside threats. Sometimes this looks like a shield of spikes to prevent creatures from eating you, using those same thick upturned needles to collect the tiniest bits of moisture from the air, then growing a 40-pound bulb four feet in circumference and 30 feet below the ground to conserve that water through months-long droughts. Other times, this looks like a quiet little girl hidden in the corner of a room, using a book to shield herself from things that she shouldn't fear but does. Things much scarier than rattlesnakes, black widow spiders, or the height, heights of a tree covered in deadly spikes. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that, Natalie. It Left really, me hanging for more. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I love the way that you talk about the desert. I, it really brings me, I'm from California too, and it really brings me back to those Joshua trees across the landscape. And I remember I I spent about a month in Joshua Tree once and the environment there, everything, every living thing there felt like it was like fighting so hard to survive and also kind of sending all these signals like, don't touch me, don't come near me, I will (laughs) poke you, I will stab you. (laughs) And the wind is so harsh Mm -hmm. and yet it has this like incredible beauty, this kind of sparse beauty that is so rich and and kind of forces you to stop and look deeper and... Mm -hmm. I love how you have taken that as a way to understand how you've grown up in the desert and how it has influenced the way that you look at the world. And I just wanted to mention something that is hard to get across in audio, but the format of this paper um, has footnotes here um, for two different terms. And I know that the format also is really important to this piece. So could you tell us more about that, please? Yeah, so because the project started in a hybrid narrative course, I knew I needed to implement something. (laughs) Um, So I played with form through that. And when I worked um, in aerospace and technical publishing, uh, one of the style guides that we used a lot was uh, IEEE, which is used a lot with engineers and um, other scientists. And it's a format I was familiar with and um, just thought was really beautiful as well. So I formatted this narrative as a IEEE conference paper, Mm -hmm. um, which uh, for people who have never seen one (laughs) um, in that style includes like an abstract and keywords and then an introduction and then sections and then references at the end. 
um, but also footnotes. So the narrative parts are are narrative. It's what I just read, very story-like. But the footnotes pull more towards the sciences as well. So the footnotes were little rabbit holes that I went into trying to uh, explain the reasons I was feeling the ways that I did as a child through psychology and sociology. Um, I minored in sociology in, in school as well, so that was another influence with me. Uh, but yeah, I was trying to create this disconnect, um, but also cohesion between that clinical feel of research and um, medicine, but also the, the comforting and um, engaging feel of narrative. Yeah, I can uh, definitely see just how you talk about the Joshua tree and the biology. I can, you know, see your interest and passion for science. Um, The way I sort of interpret that story in a way, I see the Joshua tree as a metaphor to, you know, dealing with something internal. And I guess that goes back to writing for Discovery. And how would you recommend, um, you know, teaching people how to, do writing for discovery. I mean, this sounds like a great example of studying at an early age, mm-hmm. which, you know, you might not have even been aware of, aware of when you were um, writing as a kid. But yeah, how, how do you um, go about like teaching writing for discovery or encouraging that? Yeah, um, part of this is in the, the advice I was going to give at the end, but we can, I can pull from it now. Uh, so I do teach composition as well um, at universities. I've done that for, for about five years now. And one thing that really helped me as I got back into writing was understanding the drafting process. And uh, Anne Lamott has a great book called Bad First Drafts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Where uh, she talks about creating something called a child's draft. Mm -hmm. And the child's draft is always going to be messy. And um, it's really your it's like a sandbox draft. It's your place to play. And uh, I read another book by Jeff Vandermeer who, who pulls from this as well. Um, and really talks about there's, there's two forms of imagination and um, a technical imagination, which we think about when we revise and edit. Um, and then this creative imagination that we can use for drafting. So I think the first step in teaching discovery writing is really just teaching people it's okay to be messy. And, mm-hmm also just follow your curiosity and go down these rabbit holes of, of where your curiosity leads you. Yeah. I have also taught 121, the intro composition uh, course. And this year I'm teaching creative writing as well. And that essay, the bad first drafts, we're calling it on the air because we can't say the full name. Thank you for Uh, stopping me. (laughs) Yeah. No worries. And, uh, but it really is a brilliant, brilliant Mm -hmm. piece and is also so humbling to hear from this prolific writer who has is an acclaimed writer, a successful writer, talking about how when she sits down to write that first draft, it is dreadful and mm-hmm. so challenging. But you have to just allow yourself for it. Allow it to be bad. Allow Absolutely. it to just come through you. And it is like the easiest and the hardest thing to do with writing. It really is. And um, the experiences that I've noticed a lot of students come to college with from uh, public school systems or you know private school whatever uh, is this idea that there's good writers and bad writers mm-hmm. and the good writers uh, it comes easy to them and they just you know turn out these wonderful pieces of writing um, which is just completely not true mm-hmm. if anyone who is mm-hmm. an actual writer knows that that's it's just 
patently not true. Um, so breaking down those uh, stereotypes of writing and really introducing um, that the best writing comes through mess yeah is is freeing for for those students and i i know um it was freeing for me too when i finally learned that it can be order in the chaos right absolutely yeah i remember you said in our conversation earlier this week that drafting saved me um drafting mm -hmm. saved you yeah and i was wondering if you could talk a bit more about uh what is it like to write from your perspective? And you've said as a neurodivergent uh, writer in person mm -hmm. that your process is going to look unique to you. And of course, everybody's process is, is unique to, to, to their own experience. Um, but what can you talk just a bit about how does that influence uh, your process and, and your writing? Yeah, uh, so I'll share a little story. I, I won't go on too long of a tangent about it. But um, I mentioned that I wrote a lot as a child up until about age 18, and then I had a, a really, I'm going to say traumatizing experience in my first uh, creative writing workshop in college. Um, I, I understand now that that workshop was based largely in a mid-20th century um, white male-centered mm -hmm. um, tradition, but it was very focused on, on product and quality of product, and you were expected to come to workshop with something that was you know, good writing. And I'm putting that in your yeah, process or it was product, not process. Pro exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, my experience in that, I left it with the understanding that the false understanding that kind of what I explain my students often come to uh, college with that you're either a good writer or you're, you're not a good writer. And those, uh, determinations are made based on a very small specific audience. Uh, and, the examples that you're given of quote unquote good writing. Um, I don't write that way mm -hmm. <laughs> to be, uh, to be blunt. Um, so I, my neurodivergence, um, I found, I discovered it very late, uh, in my life. Um, but it's taught me that I, my brain works circularly, like recursively. Uh, so a lot of my writing tends to replicate that. So it doesn't look, uh, often like that traditional good writing mm -hmm. um, structurally it's it's much different than that so learning that I can embrace that and not that I should be constantly changing it to adapt and fit into um, a specific style has been extremely freeing for me as well yeah I bet I mean I imagine so many people at an early age could get deterred um, yeah. right away just from being told that their writing doesn't fit some sort of convention. Mm -hmm. um, so with, uh, I guess, dealing it back to a clinical setting with um, people with, with neurodivergence, um, how, so does everyone write sort of differently? It's all a different process and how do you find what works for you? Is it just, you know, getting chaos on the paper and going from there or? Uh, that's usually a start, getting the chaos on, on mm -hmm. the paper. Uh, and I mean, you, I do have to find some organizational strategy to it. So one thing I remind myself and, and that I teach students is that it's it's good to be different and in all of those things, but a piece of advice that was given to me is that different for different sake is not <laughs> is not necessarily you know a um, a good thing. 
but purposeful difference Mm -hmm. can be. And so uh, purpose and audience are things that, you know, um, rhetorical situation, all that. (laughs) Um, But if you have a reason for uh, diverging from that traditional norm Mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason, uh, it's really just trying those things out, taking risks, uh, seeing if they work and seeing if your audience, whoever they are, will pick up on them or resonate with them. Um, if they don't, maybe you need to shift something. So that all happens in the revision process as well. Like knowing what your goals are and then, but that's, that always comes for me later in the revision process. Um, the first step is always just getting the mess down and then figuring out what did I get down? (laughs) Why did I get it down? And what do I want to do with it? Good. And I just want to sneak in one last question before we take a little break. But, uh, I was just curious about how you were talking about how your writing process and and your um, psychological process is circular. Did you find with the footnotes and, or how was it writing in this, um, you know, scientific form for your Mm -hmm. thesis? And especially I'm curious about the footnotes and did those lead to like rabbit holes upon rabbit holes or what did that feel like? Oh, absolutely. So yeah. many rabbit holes. So, uh, you know, I, I did start writing in uh, the fiction genre and then and segued over. So, uh, you know, there's that piece of advice that the most important parts you write in scene so you can mm-hmm. then draw your audience in. And you have to choose in order to do that, you have to choose what the most important parts are and highlight them that way. So because there's not a lot of dialogue or, or interaction with other characters, I, I think I kind of pulled that idea into the footnotes where I had to consider what the most important pieces of information um, from a clinical standpoint or scientific standpoint, definitions, you know, they needed to be parsed out, for example. um, Those were what went into the footnotes, the things that needed to be explained for, for specific reasons. Great. Well, shall we take a little break here? Let's do it. Welcome back. So when we caught up for a coffee earlier today, uh, you mentioned that you're working on a uh, project, on a book, and I, for one, found it really fascinating. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that on air for our listeners. Um, yeah, I'm assuming that was the one with my mom, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 Uh, how many are you writing? I know. <laughs> Wait a second. Uh, oh, countless projects going on at all at Great. all times. Um, yeah. So after I wrote my master's thesis uh, using myself as an experiment, um, in order to do that project, I connected with my parents a lot more than I ever have about um, family histories and our childhoods, and I learned. Uh, through learning about their childhoods, I was able to understand mine a lot better. Um, but certain stories kept coming up that really intrigued me. And one of them, uh, so my mother grew up in the atomic age <laughs> during the Cold War. Uh, my grandfather, her father, um, built scaffolding for the Apollo project. And uh, he was a uh, structural engineer. And he, in 1957, he was hired to build scaffolding outside of Las Vegas to do atmospheric uh, bomb testing. So my mom was about eight years old at that time. And so her and her siblings and parents uh, moved to Las Vegas. And this was a really interesting time in Las Vegas um, with, you know, atmospheric bomb testing was just weird, but they tried to normalize it through Mm -hmm. tourism and things like that. So my mom 
uh, and her siblings would go out into the desert and wear welding goggles and watch these bombs be dropped for entertainment, basically. Uh, but they, it was also a very um, serious and dangerous of course, <laughs> uh, yeah. time. So while that was happening, she would also go to school and they would do uh, like duck and cover drills yeah. to practice just in case something you know happened. And so I kept coming up back to this idea of like just how confusing that must have been for her as a child to, to separate and parse those two realities. So, uh, yeah, that's basically the, the book. We're, we're still in the early research uh, phases. She's compiling a lot of um, physical documents that my grandmother collected during the time. And um, I'm reading some books on the era to just learn historically more about it. And then we're going to start uh, interviewing possibly this summer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that image of like a family trip to go see the bomb drop, bomb test is so horrifying and so American yeah. at the same time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then, of course, then kids like your mom go off to mm-hmm. school and then hide under their desks in fear of the big one. Um, and as we talked about earlier this week, it's so telling of what a culture and society is most afraid of when those are the drills that they mm-hmm. force their children to prepare for. Right. And you and I talked, uh, you know, since we're both from California, just, um, you know, earthquake drills were, were the what we did, you know, the Great American Shake Out or whatever, mm-hmm. um, deck and cover drills. And they've kind of fall into the wayside for, for other drills. That, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Just yeah. Yeah. Active shooter drills crazy. now just yeah. are so common. And Right. I mean, I, ne- I never had those drills growing up, so I, I can't imagine having to do that as a kid. Like I imagine that there's probably some underlying trauma or something that could mm-hmm. develop there. And do you think the book that you're writing with your mom is this, in a way, a, an example of writing for discovery that could be introduced at a at a later age? Or, um, yeah, I mean that's that's one of the angles that we're we're taking it um, this project from. Uh, partly, it's a project just because I I believe the Cold War and the Atomic Age isn't talked about enough, yeah. um, especially from personal experience. But also, uh, you know, my mother had chronic insomnia when I was a child, and and still does. Um, and, you know, she would tell me it was because that when she was little, she would have these uh, intense nightmares that, that made it difficult to sleep. So um, this is something that has been lasting yeah. and had an effect on, on her life, which in turn had an effect on, on our, our lives. And so, um, you know, even late in life, I think it's it's important to process these things. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I imagine writing a book like that with your mom or with another family a person in your family must be challenging for many mm-hmm. reasons mm-hmm. um but i'm really curious about what it's like to write nonfiction and write something so personal and especially coming from you started writing fiction mm-hmm. uh, which is just all lies right <laughs> but yeah. lies well. <laughs> through lies lies through which you tell the truth as, right. as they like to say but uh in nonfiction, it the subject matter is often so close to home. Mm-hmm. And what is that process like? Do you have um, any boundaries that you don't cross? Or how do you determine when maybe a piece of writing is just for yourself and, and not for others? Yeah, that's been a real challenge for me, actually. Um, I had shared with you that uh, a piece of advice that was given me 
or not advice, but um, a noticing that mm -hmm. a classmate gave me uh, as I was working on my thesis is that when I would write about the desert or landscape, uh, the language was very rich and vivid. And then I would segue over to sections about me and they would feel very flat. Um, and so that was a great noticing that was brought to my attention. And it was something that I knew I struggled with, but the fact that it was coming across to readers that way. Uh, so I think that's where the drafting process saves you is that mm -hmm. I could then go back and just remove those parts and work on them, draft, you know, uh, revise them separately to try to dig deeper. But uh, yeah, those those personal sections are are really difficult for me to write. And one thing that's helped is just seeing other writers be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a very private person <laughs> normally. So uh, being open to being vulnerable in my writing is very challenging for me. Um, but also, you know, when you write nonfiction, you're going to be writing about other people too, whether that's family or, or friends. So um, I'm still navigating that. I think I'm always going to be, but with the project with my mom, that's something that we would have to just work on collaboratively. I think make sure we're both comfortable. Well, you're definitely courageous in uh, sharing this story and hopefully it, um, you know, opens doors for other writers or people wanting to write. Mm -hmm. um, it is called inspiration dissemination, this podcast. So <laughs> We appreciate you sharing. Yeah, thank you so much. With us, yeah. yeah. So I know you just started the program. Mm -hmm. uh, you are in a two-year program, and you're just wrapping up your first term. But and I personally have a hard time answering this question because I don't know what's coming after graduation. But I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about where you think your interests might guide you um, with teaching mm -hmm. or whatever a path might look like out after graduation? Yeah, so uh, my, I mean, my original plan was to stay in academia and, and teach, you know, creative writing to creative writers. But the more I've branched out into this other field or world, uh, I, I now understand that I want to teach writing to people who may not necessarily know they want to be writers or know that it can be helpful to them. Um, so patients and practitioners, um, but also just anyone in a science field and really helping to bridge uh, that disconnect between, um, you know, STEM and, and humanities that just keeps, seems like it continues to grow. Uh, there's so much important collaboration that can be made between them um, in a lot of ways. But uh, I think the direction I'd like to go after graduation is really to segue into into the medical field and and find ways to, to help people um, right for therapy. That would be fantastic. I mean, we could definitely use more people like you in the medical field, you know, the non-traditional doctors and nurses. Um, I think there's a lot of benefits that can come from that. Uh, and on this show, we have three questions that we like to ask our guests. So the first question is related to your research. And what's your favorite thing about doing what you do in your research here at OSU? I think it's just never knowing where the next day is going to take me. Wow, I love that. And mm -hmm. what better place to do that than on a campus with other artists and creatives, but also a campus with just so many other fields of study. There's, um, you know, environmental study here, medical study, um, psychology, sociology. It's just a wealth of minds and uh, ideas and being able to 
have the opportunity to simmer here for a couple of years and just talk to anyone and everybody who has any interest in what I'm doing. Um, I'm just really, really excited about that. Awesome. Fabulous. And the other question that we like to ask is, if, what advice would you give? And you can interpret that as narrowly or as broadly as you'd like. Um, any advice to any group of people? Yeah. Um, so I thought about this, and it, and it is going to be writing-related. And we touched on a little bit of this already. But um, there's two quotes from authors that I go back to often um, as I grow as a writer. And so William Faulkner said, um, don't be a writer. Instead, be writing. And I think that goes back to what I was saying about process over product. Um, and also, uh, Kurt Vonnegut um, said that practicing an art, no matter how well or how badly, um, is a way to make your soul grow. Um, sing in the shower, dance to the radio, tell stories, write a poem, even if it's a, lo- even if it's a lousy poem. So I think that uh, just simmering in that world of creation, no matter who you are, there's just so much uh, beauty that it can bring to your life. Um, a couple of quotes that my mentor at CSUN would say, she would say quotes all the time, and I always meant to write down who originally said them, and I never did. So um, these were things that she would say to me, though. Uh, but um, never apologize, never explain um, was one. And then if it's important, if it isn't important to you, it doesn't count. If it doesn't count, it's not worth writing about. So that goes back to like that idea of write about um, what's important to you, not necessarily thinking about what's important to other people. Because if it's important to you, it's there's going to be someone else out there that it's important to. But um, all this just to say, like, don't write for others. Don't write to create a quality product. Just write for yourself, um, for discovery, making connections, solving puzzles. Um, be messy, take risks, be vulnerable. Um, and if you can, and you're able to, write, write with a pen and paper. <laughs> you shared something really interesting about that. Uh, maybe it was like writing. I can't remember if it was just writing by hand or writing in general, but there is actually a... Writing for discovery is so powerful because mm-hmm. when you write, neurologically, you're creating connections mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. weren't there before. There's some, something cathartic about it, almost, right? Writing with a pen and paper. Yeah, I think it does two things. Uh, the 21st century has been just so incredibly um, wonderful uh, at teaching us how the brain works. Uh, through imaging and things like that that we just didn't have before, technologies we didn't have. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of research that's discovering just how much engagement the neurons in your brain are, you know, firing at each other when you when you write. And it's different than, than other forms of communication. Um, and it does help uh, create um, juxtapositions or comparisons um, that can help create meaning and organizing ideas in a way that um, you, it's hard to in other uh, other ways of communication. So um, writing by hand, uh, we've been doing that for thousands of years and computers just haven't been around that long. So I think evolutionarily there might be something to that. Mm. Um, it just I know for me and, and I've heard from other writers that that having a pen and paper, if, if you're able to do that, uh, your ideas from your mind just seem to flow on, you know, in a way that the computer kind of halts or stilts that. Um, but also, you know, the self-editing and, and being messy um, component, if you're writing with pen and paper, um, it's harder to edit yourself. So those ideas can come out too. Um, so I, I have my, my own students write by hand a lot. Uh, it's something that they're probably not used to being um, raised in a digital age. So I think it's a great practice to come back to. 
Great. And, and one area of interest that you write about and you research is disability studies, too. And I was wondering if you could just tell us, um, we've got about 10-ish more minutes here, okay. but if you could tell us a little bit about that field and why it's important to you. Yeah, that uh, disability studies is the newest addition to my research, so I'm still learning about it. But there's uh, this idea um, called social model of disability uh, versus the medical model. So the medical model is what we're most uh, used to seeing um, in practice, which is uh, medical model views disabilities as a health condition that you know needs to be fixed mm. or treated mm-hmm. by medical professionals, um, people um, with uh, disabilities, um, and they're often viewed as different from normal, and there's a more placement on what the person can't be or can't do, um, versus the social model argues that disability is socially constructed um, and operates um, in reaction to uh, interaction between people living with impairments in an environment that's filled with physical communication and social um, hurdles. So uh, the social model of disability is different because it encourages behavior that um, changes environments to welcome people who live with those impairments to participate on a more equal basis um, with others. So it doesn't deny the reality of the impairment. Um, it doesn't pretend that it doesn't exist, but it does challenge ableism in a way that um, the medical model doesn't. So that's something that I've been reading a lot about, and I think it's really interesting, especially in the the world of neurodivergency, um, specifically autism and ADHD, which um, which is my world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's interesting to have these conversations from a different angle to see see what can happen. Definitely, yeah. And you've said that there there isn't a ton of writing out from the neurodivergent perspective, and mm-hmm. you know there are some for sure. Um, but it is an experience that is not as commonly read about, mm-hmm. um, and experienced through reading um, and, and the author's own words as it could be. And it sounds like you're operating in, at the intersection of such rich territory and different disciplines. And we're just so grateful to have you here on the show. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, thank you so much here. for having me. It's um, just so excited to be here. This was awesome. I have one last little sneaky question that Absolutely. I want to put in here. Um, so you are from the desert and now you yeah. live in like a lush kind of <laughs> rainforest yeah. land. How does it feel being uh, here? So different. Um, in all honesty, this was one of the reasons I wanted to move here. I wanted mm-hmm. to experience something different. Um, uh, I keep talking about my mentor, Catherine Hake, but she just mm-hmm. had such an influence on me. But that was one piece of advice that she gave me is that... Um, Landscape writers who write about home can't do that unless you leave. That's great advice. So, um, so I left, and I keep having to expand my wardrobe because I brought desert clothes. <laughs> I brought warm desert clothes, but warm desert clothes are dry, cold. They're not wet. Cold. So, <laughs> wet cold is is much different. But I've, uh, it's been a beautiful change. Um, the the moss and the mushrooms and just everything's so different and and lovely. And I just find myself looking around in ways that I. Haven't in a while. Everything's surprising, so it's nice. Hopefully it's not too cold for you here. It's a bit cold for me, but... Um, <laughs> well, we have yet to see. We just hit winter, so... Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how I do. Yeah. All right, well, let's uh, hear our last tradition here at ID is to hear your kind of walk-off song, um, your outro song. So could you please tell us the song that you chose and why you chose this song? 
Yeah, so um, I chose this the the record player song, and it was um, originally created and released by Daisy the Great in 2018, and then it was re-recorded <clears throat> in 2021 with AJR. But when this song came out, um, you know, it's catchy and it's easy to sing, and uh, the char- main character of the song I related to in a lot of personal ways. But um, I kept getting drawn back to it, and then I looked at the lyrics and the themes of identity and nostalgia really spoke to me. Um, you never really know if you're presenting an authentic, true identity or one that was created in response to expectations set by others. So um, I think the last time many of us felt connected to that true, authentic self was in childhood. Uh, so, um, yeah, this song just really spoke to me in a lot of those ways. And it's it's one of my favorites. Well, thank you so much for Nat- Natalie for being here. It's such an honor to speak with you. And I am just looking forward to reading more of your work. And thank now, you so much. It's been amazing. Good luck with everything. I'm looking forward to seeing where you go. Yeah, definitely. And now let's enjoy the record player song by Daisy the Green. 2014, dyed my hair blue. It came out of seasick sort of green. I like vintage dresses when they fall. Just below my knees, I pretend I scraped them. Climbing in the trees. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.